Revelation chapter 3, we're in a study of the seven churches, and uh, we're kind of over the hump, I guess, because we're into the uh, fifth church this morning, the church in Sardis. Uh, so this is a little bit of a heavy text, but not nearly as heavy as last week, which is why I went hunting and gave that text a bow. <laughs> this one's a breeze compared to that, but we'll read it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes thus shall thus, excuse me, be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that your word would be to us, that we would be those who have ears to hear, or that you would speak to us about our individual lives and our corporate identity together as a church. You'd speak to us about where we're alive and maybe where we're not, where we are living and breathing and active and moving and growing and pursuing you. And maybe where we're not, areas in our lives and our hearts where we're dead to your life or dead like in our own life in pursuit of you. Lord, we would hate to be those who don't hear and obey the word this morning. And as we hear, help us to realize that your word is meant to be responded to. It's meant to be obeyed. It's meant to be transformative by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let it be thus for us this morning. Save us, Lord, from being dead like And going through the motions, let us be alive to your glorious truth and the wonderful glory of Christ. Please help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you and helpful to your church for the glory of Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, the fifth church this morning, as I said, and it started with the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was a church that was drifting. They had left their first love. And then the church in Smyrna was a church that was suffering. And they were being called to stand firm for Christ. The church in Pergamum was a church that was compromising with the teaching of Balaam and sexual immorality and idolatry. And the church in Thyatira was a church that was tolerating things within its midst that it should not have been tolerating. And so we go from the church that was drifting to the church that was suffering to the church that was compromising and the church that was tolerating and we get to the church that was dead. Just outright dead. The church in Sardis. And the church of Sardis is peculiar, peculiar, excuse me, in that its condition mirrored its city. Because the city of Sardis was on many accounts or by many accounts, a dead city. Sardis was once in history past a vibrant, culturally vibrant, confident, full of life sort of city. It had a glorious past and it had a great reputation. But for Sardis, the city, its time had passed. It was a town, it was a community that was in decline. In many ways, it was in decay. Other cities had, other cities, excuse me, had usurped its place in trade and in strategic import. It had suffered key military defeats that had precipitated its fall. But the city of Sardis was trying to cling to its former identity. It was aware of its reputation. It was once a great city with a great name and great activity. 
circumstances that caused it to be in decline, but it was trying to cling to those old days. It had a name. It had a reputation. But the city of Sardis was dead. And Jesus, using the city as sort of a metaphor to wake up the church, says to the church, you're just like your city. You're supposed to be a light on the hill. You're supposed to be a light in the dark place. You're supposed to be the living among the dead. You're supposed to be a representation of the living, risen, resurrected, glorious Christ. But you, church in Sardis, are very much like your city of Sardis. You have a name. You have a reputation for being alive. But in reality, you are dead, he says to them. Now, we're not sure what once was, what it meant that they had a reputation that were li- they were alive. We're, we're not sure of what sort of vibrancy was there. Or was it that they had sent missionaries or they had planted churches or they had done um, great evangelism in the city or great relief and mercy ministry? We're, we're not told. We're not told exactly why they're dead or exactly how they got there. Is there some sort of trajectory to be seen in the seven churches? Did they begin to leave their first love as a church in Ephesus? And this is the end game of drifting. Was it that they were compromising on issues of morality? And this is the end game of compromise. Was it that they were tolerating like the church in Thyatira, things that they shouldn't tolerate? And this is the end game of inappropriate tolerance. We're not told exactly. But they were dead they were once alive, and they had a reputation, like a star that had burnt out long ago, but its light was still shining forth. There was some glare, some gleam, but nothing behind it. What a sad story. And it begs the question, we we have to ask this, though we don't have a whole lot of clues in the text, we've got to ask this on a real sort of basic level. Why or how does a church die? Because churches do die. Why or how does a church die? Now, the reasons for the death of the church in Sardis are certainly not the same for the death of the city in Sardis. Those had to do with trade and strategy and military exploits. I'll tell you why a church dies. At the core, at the root, a church dies for one reason and one reason only. It ceases to be about Jesus. Not just about Jesus in a broad sense, but it ceases to be about Jesus in a specific, radical, unswerving sense. The church is about Jesus. It's not about politics. It's not about people. It's not about causes. It's not about good things. It's about the God-man, Jesus Christ. The church is about Jesus. He's the originator. And he's the consummation. He's the head, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. He's the one for whom and for whose glory we exist. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He's the one to whom, for whom, and around whom the church is gathered. The church is meant to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, all about Jesus, There's other things. But the main thing is Jesus. And the church always has to fight to keep it about Jesus. Why? Because we want to make it about us. We just do. That's what we want to do as people. We're meant to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, but we're so often egocentric, me-centered. Or we want to make it about our gifts, or our talents, or our causes, or our mission, or our thing, or our candidate. And there's place for those discussions. But it's not center stage. Center stage on the church is meant to be reserved for Jesus Christ. It is about him and his glory, his person, his plan, his power. It is about Jesus. The church dies for one reason and one reason only. It ceases to be about Jesus specifically, radically, and unswervingly. Christ 
is our life. We only have life in him. So what happens then when a church ceases to be about Jesus is that people can then exist within the community of the church who are not truly connected to Christ through faith, i.e. born again. If we don't make it about Jesus, and uncomfortably so to some degree for those who don't know him, in other words, if they don't come in and go, oh gosh, this gig is all about Jesus. I better figure out who Jesus is or I'm out of here. If church ceases to be about Jesus and lets it about, be about other things, then people can exist within the community on an ongoing basis who are not truly belonging to Christ. Haven't been born again. Haven't been made alive through the repentance of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So that what happens then is there is a critical mass, a change of critical mass within a church. From a body of believers, astoundingly, to a body made up mostly of unbelievers. And this happens. I mean, it seems inconceivable. It seems impossible. But if it's not about Jesus and there isn't this sense, this overwhelming sense of I'm here and this is radically about Jesus. I, 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 I better pay attention and figure out what Jesus is about and repent of my sins and put my faith in him and be saved and forgiven and identified with him. Then the church can grow as a body of unbelievers. That's the only way that a church is truly dead. Now, we often speak of it in sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, popular phrase. No, not the one. No, that's a nice phrase. Thank you. Uh, in a colloquial sense. Isn't that a good word? We often sort of use, ah, oh, the church is dead in sort of a, a colloquial or tongue-in-cheek sort of sense, right? Right? Like, like the church isn't really dead. It's made up of believers primarily, but we often say, gosh, that church is dead. Now, this is important. A church cannot be dead, but be very much dead-like. Now, we've got to rid ourselves of the corporate sense because it's too easy to think about others and sort of absorb this, like, oh, yeah, well, he's talking to all of us. Christ is speaking to each individual now. You may be alive, born again in Christ, but very much dead-like. And therein, perhaps, is a warning for us. Because we are not a dead church. It's not that we've abandoned Christ and the gospel, and now we have just people gathering around good causes, and they're not actually uh, transformed and converted by Christ. We're not a dead church. But there may very well be some dead likeness in our church and in our midst. And the part affects the whole. Remember Achan and the sin that he brought into the camp. The whole camp of Israel fell to the enemy because of the sin of some. Sin never happens in a vacuum. We know this. My sin affects you, your sin affects me, and our sin affects one another because we are together the body of Christ. And any body begins to develop a cultural or corporate identity. And what the church wants to have is a cultural identity of being vibrantly alive in Christ, not only through conversion, but through pursuit. Not that we've only repented of our sins and been made alive because we are dead in our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, but that we are truly growing in Christ and pursuing Christ because the sign of life is that something is growing. If it's not growing, it's stagnating. It's on its way toward death. And so we need to think of it not only on a corporate level, though we're all affected by each other's stuff, but we need to now deal with it on an individual level and say, okay, I'm I'm truly a Christian. I'm not dead. I've been forgiven of my sins and made alive, but is there dead-likeness in my life? I think would be the weight of the text and Jesus' words upon us today. And the church in Sardis suffered from a lack of self-awareness. 
You see, they, they were dead, but they, they didn't know it. They suffered from a lack of self-awareness. Look what Paul says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to a church made up of primarily believers. But he says to them, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Because there always will be those in the midst who are pseudo-Christians, counterfeit Christians. Those who have churchianity, not Christianity. They may be attending, but they haven't been transformed through faith in Christ and the repentance of sins. Jesus spoke about it with regards to the kingdom in the book of Matthew when he spoke about the parable of the tares and the wheat. Right, Wheat was something that was a crop that was planted and it grew and then it yielded fruit. And tares was a pseudo crop, a counterfeit crop. It was a weed. And it grew thick and it looked just like the wheat as it was growing. And its root system was invasive and it would compete for resources and nutrition. And it would sometimes begin to choke out the wheat. And the farmer would look at his field and say, I think there's tares there, but I'm not sure how to deal with them because they look just like the wheat. And if I try to uproot them, I'll uproot the whole thing. In other words, it's complicated. In any gathering. So-called Christian gathering, there's always believers and non-believers. That's why we've got to make it crystal clear that it's about Jesus and the gospel and that it is black and white and there is a line in the sand and you are either in or out. And everybody is invited to be in. God loves the world and gave his only begotten son that none would perish, but all would come to repentance and have everlasting life. God desires that none would perish, but all would repent of their sins and have life in Jesus Christ. But Jesus said in Matthew that it would be complicated. There would be tares among the wheat. And the only time for the friendly farmer that this would become obvious is at the time of fruiting. You see, the wheat would show forth fruit finally and the tares won it. And you'd be like, ah, there was a wheat, but gosh, look at all these tares in here because they looked alike until the end. Therefore, the careful Christian ought to examine his or herself to see that they truly have Christianity and not just churchianity. You're not just going through the motions but you've truly been made alive in Christ and not just made alive, but now growing in your life with Christ. Because if you're stagnating, you're going backwards and that's a slippery slope. Church in Ephesus left its first love. They were drifting. Church in Smyrna was compromising. Thyatira, they were tolerating. And here we have a dead church. Oh, it just started to rain. You hear that? Isn't that cool? We need that. So then, again, put up that verse from 2 Corinthians, Tim. Thank you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now, this is, this is going to get nitty-gritty here. Christians would, would differ on their views as to whether or not one can lose their salvation. Differing views. We're, we're not going to solve that today. Okay? But I do not believe that's what is in the text. Church is truly only dead if a critical mass of it is without Christ. If you are in Christ, you have life. But there are many who would say they are in Christ and are not. So the Apostle Paul would say out of love now, test yourselves and in the testing, we'll find out if you're a weed or a tear. How will we know the wheat? Well, it's complicated, but there is going to be some evidential fruit. Man, you can't get away from that. You'll know them by their fruit. If you're a Christian, there is going to be evidence. Now, there will be times and seasons, perhaps, of sloppy living and backsliding and lackadaisical approaches and so on and so forth, where someone might take a snapshot and look and say, I don't see Christian fruit. 
Thankfully, the one who's making this call is Christ himself. Right? Christ said, I'm the one who has the seven spirits. That's Revelation, book of Revelation language for the Holy Spirit who is sent into the church, who makes the church alive and makes the church vibrant and active. And I'm the one who holds the seven stars, the leadership of the church. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's making the call here. But test yourself. Don't test anybody else. So you're going to start thinking, oh man, Sally needs to hear this message. (laughs) No, you need to hear this message. So then, in light of this scripture and the scripture in the book of Revelation, we need to look for signs of life. Look for signs of life. And maybe ask this question. Are you, here's a sign of life, making Jesus the king? He is the king. All authority has been given unto me, said the resurrected Lord. He is King Jesus, ruling and reigning, seated on the throne, high and above all the nations and all that is created at whose every knee will bow and tongue will confess. He is the king. He is the Lord. But are you daily, are we, I should say, daily in our lives making Jesus the king? That comes down to nitty-gritty stuff. That comes down to decisions about relationships, about finance, about sexuality, about career, about forgiveness, Right? This, this comes down to like, and, and, and this bitterness that I have, and this offense that I'm holding that that other person did against me, and the way that I'm dealing with it, am I making Jesus the king? Or am I making me the king? Right? Me the king in that example would be holding on to that bitterness, holding on to that unforgiveness, believing that I'm the most offended one. Listen, Jesus is more offended by their sin than you are. Christ is always ultimately the offended party. All sin is against God. But who is king? In my finances, who is king? If I don't tithe, if I don't bring anything to the Lord, if I don't give offerings, then you're saying you are the king. Because the king is deserving. And so we bring our tithes and offerings to the king. If you don't, then you're the king looking for signs of life. Are we honest in our financial dealings? If we cheat on our taxes or our business dealings or our friends, then we're making ourselves the king, not Jesus the king because he's a righteous king. He's a truthful king. In our sexuality, am I making excuses? Am I making demands? Am I practicing sexual immorality? Then I'm the king. What does it look like to have Jesus be the king in your sexuality? In your marriage. Who's the king? Or the queen, I should say. (laughs) This is nitty gritty stuff. That's a good one, she says. Making Jesus the king in daily life. Am I? You, get, you get really got to think about your decisions now. Perhaps a good exercise this week is trying to identify places where you're not making Jesus the king in those decisions. That would be a fruitful endeavor this week. I would suggest that you journal it. Don't let it just be thoughts as you're driving down the road and then someone cuts you off and you have a different contrary thought. <laughs> Take some concerted time and sit down with the Holy Spirit and an open blank notepad and say, Holy Spirit, where am I not letting Jesus be the king? Another question is, am I longing to glorify Jesus? These are signs of life. Okay, there's a real difference between living, vibrant Christianity and pseudo-Christianity. The true Christian is longing to glorify Jesus. We don't always pull it off, but are you longing to? And it comes down to the same things. Am I longing to Honor him in my relationships. Am I longing to glorify him in my finances? Am I longing to glorify him in my own heart and issues of forgiveness? Am I longing to glorify him in my marriage, in my parenting, in my sexuality, in my business that I own, in my workplace? If not, then you wonder. I would humbly suggest to you that the man or woman who has been born again 
and is growing in their faith has a true, sincere longing to glorify Jesus. It's always a battle because the flesh wages war against the spirit. It's always a battle, but is there at least, this would be a sign of life, a longing to glorify Jesus? Is there at least some tension when you're not? Some conviction, some sense of, oh, this is more about glorifying me than him. Signs of life. Another one would be, are you desiring to obey Jesus? This this is pretty easy. Is your life about how much can I obey or about how much can I get away with? If it's how much can I get away with, then you you really need to examine yourself. And there's seasons, you know, sin is blinding and it has this blinding effect. And there's certainly seasons as there has been in my life where I'm thankful that it's not someone else taking a snapshot and making the decision, but Jesus who knows our hearts. But do you have a sincere desire to obey Christ? That's a sign of life. And if not, if your desire is to just see what you can get away with and still sort of be okay, that's, that's, a, that's not a sign of life. Are you pursuing holiness like Jesus? See how this is all Christocentric? Are you pursuing holiness like Jesus? Holiness doesn't just happen, right? Holiness doesn't just happen. The flesh and the deeds of the flesh just happen. Holiness is a pursuit. Holiness is something you got to give yourself to. Holiness is something you got to contend for. Holiness is something you got to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit for and the sanctifying work of the Word of God for. Are you pursuing holiness? That would be a sign of life of saying, man, I've got some struggles, some areas of immorality, unholiness, and rebellion in my life, but I'm pursuing holiness like Jesus is holy. Another sign of life that kind of intersects with these things is are you convicted of your sin? Not do you feel guilty about your sin. Everybody feels guilty whether they admit it or not. But we bring our guilt to Jesus Christ who paid the penalty on the cross in our place that we might be forgiven of our sins and declared not guilty. I'm not talking about do you feel guilty. I'm talking about do you feel convicted. There is a profound difference. To feel guilty is merely to say, yeah, I blew it. To feel convicted is to say, that is wrong. I am wrong. Jesus is right for the spirit of the truth to lead us in right living. Conviction is different than condemnation. I'm not asking if you feel condemned. The Christian should not feel condemned. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian and the hope of the gospel is to be free from condemnation, but fully convicted of sin. Not convicted in the sense of declared guilty, Christ has removed our guilt, convicted in the sense of believing what God says about our sin to be right and our pursuit of it, engagement, wrong. If you're convicted and you're vexed and there's this inner struggle between the spirit and the flesh always happening, you're like, ah, help me, Holy Spirit. Then that is a sign of life. If there's no conviction, and you're able to just engage in these sinful things without it, then that is perhaps the absence of life. And one must ask his or herself a hard question then. Either you are not a Christian and have not been born again, and you merely have churchianity, you're showing up and going through the motions, you need to be saved. Or you're a Christian whose conscience has been seared and whose heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that now it's easier to sin than it should be. And God allows that. If we persist in our sin, God allows our conscience to be seared and our hearts to be hardened. And what once seemed unthinkable before Christ because of the love of God, we now do easily on a regular basis. Danger danger. There's things that we know to be sinful and we're not feeling convicted, even to the point where we will justify and rationalize our sin. Isn't our ability to justify ourselves unbelievable? Our sense of entitlement? Well, I can do this because I deserve this. I should be able to do this one little thing because she's not providing for me in that way. 
Well, I should be able to flirt with him because my husband isn't making me feel beautiful or making me feel wonderful or speaking kind things to me. Or I've been dealt a raw blow. My daughter died of cancer. My wife recently died. My wife didn't. So, I, so now I can do this because life has been so hard for me. I deserve a break today. I mean, we're really good at justifying our sinful behavior. And yet Christ will look and say, I died on the cross in your place to pay the price for that very, for that very sin. And if, if, if the sin is gnarly enough for Christ to have bled for it in our place, then we shouldn't spend time rationalizing and justifying why we're doing it. Conviction of sin is a sign of life. So connected to that, then a sign of life is, or are we mourning over our sin? You know, sort of a colloquial phrase is cheap grace. It's not really, well, it's kind of pseudo-biblical. But we got this phrase, cheap grace. You know what I mean? We sin and then we're like, oh, I know that was wrong, Lord. Forgive me. And we just kind of move on. But, but the true believer who is making Jesus the king, longing to glorify Jesus, desiring to obey Jesus, pursuing holiness, will actually mourn over his or her sin. Not because of the penalty of it, that's been removed through the cross, but because of what it says about Christ in our life and the destructive power that it has in our lives and in the community and in the lives around us. We'll actually mourn over our sin. I'm deeply regretful that I did those things. We don't live in that place of regret. The gospel has freed us from that. But we mourn over what sin does to the heart of God, the way it breaks our intimacy with him, the way it breaks our intimacy with others. So then the question is a sign of life. Are you repenting of your sin? The the Christian lifestyle is a lifestyle of continued repentance. It is initiated through repentance, repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And it is continued in repentance and confession, right? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So then, nitty gritty here, are there areas of your life right now where you're refusing to repent? Then, you know, that's an examination, Either then, hard language, man, but this is a text. Either you think you're alive and you're dead, or you're just a Christian who is in rebellion. I know what that is. And the one sin that right now you're trying to stuff to the back of your mind that keeps coming up, that's the one. That one that you can justify and rationalize over and over again and tell God and yourself over and over again why it's okay for you to do it why you deserve it, why you need it. That's the one. It's not coming up in your mind over and over again by chance. That's not your flesh. That is the spirit of God because God loves you, revealing destructive sin to you that you might repent of it and pursue wholeness. So then finally, sign of life, are you growing evidentially in Christ-likeness? Evidentially. Again, for the Christian, there's gonna be evidential fruit. And we can't, we can't do what in some degree culture and each other wants us to do. We can't just allow each other to go through the motions and never see fruit year after year and say, well, I think it's okay. He or she loves the Lord. You know how we always use that phrase for people that were really uncertain about their standing before Christ? No fruit in their lives. No growth in their lives. No vibrant Christian mission. None of that. And we say, oh, she loves the Lord. No, she doesn't. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We use that as a horrible phrase to send people to hell with a smile on their faces. We cannot just excuse these things. If there is no growth, and we're not talking about Christian perfectionism, that's not what we're talking about. But if there's no growth, then we have to ask, brother, sister, are you truly in Christ? And if they understand the gospel and have truly repented of their sins and are in Christ, then we have to say, brother, sister, you must repent. You're backslidden and you're backsliding like the church in Ephesus. And then that leads to compromising like the church in Smyrna and tolerating things you shouldn't tolerate like the church in Thyatira. And that leads to dad likeness. 
which is not what Christ has for his church. We are those who have been given life and abundant life and eternal life. And we are to live these things out. You see, the church doesn't die only by sinning, but the church that is dead goes on sinning. And sinning is always blinding. It always causes drifting. That's why the church is to be a repenting and confessing church. So Jesus then tells us how we move back toward life. Okay, moving back toward life, verses two and three. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Moving toward life. First of all, Jesus says, wake up. Now, again, we're, we're kind of creating a dual audience here. Okay, there's non-believers. They need to wake up to the reality that in their sins, apart from Christ, they are dead. They need to repent of their sins and be forgiven and be made alive to God in Christ. There's that sort of wake up. And maybe some of you. But then we're talking about this dead-like Christian that needs to wake up. And that's what it is. Man, it's an, it's an awakening that happens. There's a blindness that needs to be dealt with by God's spirit. But you got to engage in it today. You got to engage. You got to begin to realize maybe there's dead likeness in my life and begin to ask the Holy Spirit to remove the blinders. Open my eyes, Lord, to see the areas of my life that are dead like where I'm closed off to you or to others or to righteousness or any of these things. Because, hey, listen, Jesus came to give life and life more abundantly. But Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's real. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So some of us may not be dead in the sense that we're not in Christ, but we are pursuing the things of death in our rebellion. And Jesus would say to us in the text today, wake up, man. Devil's prowling around like a roaring lion. Don't, don't, don't play with the things of death. This is for real. This is for real. Marriages are at stake. Teenagers are at stake. Children are at stake. Unborn babies are at stake. Whole generations are at stake. The salvation of a community is at stake. Our witness is at stake. This is not game playing anymore. We can't play church. We can't go through the motions. Wake up, the Lord would say, in his love to move back toward life. The second thing he says is to strengthen that which remains. I don't know what he meant necessarily, but there were things in the church that were not fully dead perhaps, that were lifelike, that needed to be given careful attention to again. And the neglect of those had a weakening effect in their lives. Right? Sins of omission are just as deadly as sins of commission. The failure to do certain things had a weakening effect in their lives, the failure to study and read scripture pray, pursue community, forgiveness, so on and so forth. He says, strengthen the things that remain because the Christian life is a battle and the Christian life is a long battle. It's like the Lord of the Rings, a whole trilogy, (laughs) extended version. It's a long battle. And so we have this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, speaking to the men and women of faith in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, Your salvation, his glory, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The Christian life is a battle. 
Very much so. It's a battle against sin. But we have new natures that are alive to God. And we have the help of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to pursue righteousness and sanctification. And when we grow weary in that because of the opposition of the enemy and the prevailing culture of the world, the scriptures say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Your battle against sin is nothing compared to his. He was nailed to a cross in our stead. So let's persevere and not grow weary and not lose heart. In a very real way, the battle is already won by Jesus in his cross and his resurrection. But the call on the Christian is to persevere by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ to persevere, strengthen what remains. And then Jesus says there in those verses to remember, remember. Remember. He said that also to the church in Ephesus. Remember the first things and do them again. To rehearse the gospel. You know, the gospel is not the means by which we're saved and then we move on to greater things. The gospel is the means by which the Christian lives. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of how lost we were without Christ and how gloriously saved we are in Christ and the power of salvation and the new nature and the Holy Spirit in us that we might live for the glory of Christ. Sometimes we just got to continually remind ourselves, remember these things. Sometimes, honestly, for some of us, it's remembering when we were once on fire and recognizing that we are now dead-like. I've been there, man. I know it feels like I'm this mean guy preaching at you, but I'm so with you. And I am in no way better than you. And I have failures just like you. And dead-like seasons and places in my life too. Believe me, I sit with the text myself. And sometimes we just need to remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and let that revive our hearts because there's dead likeness in dead places and our hearts have been crowded with so many other things. We just need to remember the love of God and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and allow it to revive us. But he doesn't say it's enough just to remember it. He then says, keep it, obey. To keep is to obey. To keep is to obey. The greatest folly for the Christian is to know truth and not do truth. The word of God is meant to be obeyed. The gospel is meant to have implications in our life that are transformative. And then he says, repent. That's how we move back toward life. Man, what a gift repentance is. We see it over and over again in this text of the seven churches. What a gift it is. What a gift it is. You know, life isn't like repentance. Sometimes in life, we dig such big holes through our errors that it seems that there's just no way out of it. Sometimes that's true, man. We can make decisions that affect our whole life and generations. We can make messes that we just could never possibly clean up. And even with the grace of God, we'll suffer the implications of them for years to come as well our children. That's life. But look at how repentance is different than the hard, cold facts of life. Repentance says you're on the wrong course and it's destructive but you're able to come before God who loves you and gave his son for you and say, God, I'm wrong about this. I'm convicted about this. I'm wrong about this. I confess that. I recognize that. I turn from these things to you. And then to receive forgiveness and washing and cleansing. And sometimes God heals our circumstances. Sometimes things that we put in motion that were destructive and God's grace are reversed. Sometimes there's not. Sin has consequences. Part of God's kindness is he, he lets us sit in those that we might learn while sin is real and destructive for me and my family and my friends. And so repentance is an incredible gift. And Jesus loves this church. He doesn't hate this church, the church in Revelation and ours. He loves them. So he comes to them in love. He says, I love you. Wake up. Strengthen the few things that you still have. Remember the glorious gospel. Keep it, begin to obey and repent. And then he just says, 
in verse 3, the last part of verse 3. If you will not wake up, if you refuse to move toward life, if you persist in dead likeness, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know what hour I will come upon you. Ah, there's only one way to understand that. That in some way he would visit that church in judgment. Corporately and individually. He said to the church in Ephesus, you guys are backsliding, you're leading your first love. If you persist in this way, I'm coming and I'm taking away your lampstand. I'm going to shut down the church. You know what? That church that that letter was written to in Ephesus, they're not there anymore. Like that happened. Jesus loves the church, but he loves the church too much to just let it cease to be the church by moving from its center, who is Christ himself. And so his judgment, whatever it would look like, I don't know, and I don't want to speculate. His judgment would be an act of mercy because in the spiritual reality, uh, weird phrase, in the economy of God, death begets death. Our sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. When we persist in it, it has an infection on others. And it continually reinfects our own lives. But life begets life. And when we begin to live out the truth of Jesus Christ, it infects us over and over again and it grows and it affects those around us. And now we are the city on a hill, the light in the dark world, not the church that has a reputation but is actually dead. There was a living remnant. Sure, for sure, most of you. He says in verse four, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, a rather colorful phrase. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. They stuck with Jesus. This is a language of the promises in the next verse. Verse five, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Told you before that in the book of Revelation when it talks about overcoming, the idea is sticking with Jesus, right? This was a church who had moved from its center. They were like Ephesus who was drifting, like Thyatira who was tolerating, like Smyrna who was compromising or Pergamum, whichever one it was. He says, he who overcomes, to overcome is to stick with Jesus. Come what may, to stick to the truth of the gospel. He will wear white garments with me, Jesus says. Picture purity, but also celebration. Revelation chapter 19, we're there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Man, the pains of this life, the trials of this life, the challenges and temptations of this life are going to be nothing when we're in glory. Paul says they're not even worthy to be compared as to when we are in glory. And that's what that white robe is talking about. The celebration of being in glory with him. He says, I will not erase your name from the book of life. This is the Lamb's book of life. When someone is saved, when they're born again, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember when the disciples got all excited about casting out demons in the book of Luke and Jesus said, don't be excited that you could cast out demons. Be excited that your name is written in the book of life, that you have salvation. And on the judgment day, Revelation chapter 20 says that there will be books in the plural that are opened the book of all of our sins, the books of all of our sins. It's multitudinous, it's voluminous, there's many. But then there will be the Lamb's book of life. And anyone whose name wasn't written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There's only one way to escape judgment for sins. It's to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain in our place, and to have our names added to the book. And that's the promise of salvation. Don't read it negatively and take the promise as a threat. He's not saying that I will erase your name from the book of life as a threat. He's saying, I will not. He's not teaching here that you can lose your salvation through sloppy living. He's saying, he who overcomes, stick with me. You don't have to worry about it. You'll be celebrating garments of white and I will not erase your name from the Lamb's book of life. You know what happened in this ancient culture in cities? Is there was a city roster and citizens in good standings had their name in it. And when they fell out of good standing in that city, they had their names erased from it. And they would have known that as citizens of Sardis 
Surely many had their names erased as that city found a decline. Jesus is saying, I'm not like the city of this world. You are mine. I will not erase your name from the Lamb's book of life. And then he says, I will confess you, I will confess your name before the Father. Remember in Matthew when Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. Can you imagine on that great day in glory, standing there when the roll is called up yonder and hear Jesus say your name before the Father? Oh yeah, Father. Terry, she's mine. Oh yeah, Father. Paul, he's mine. I will confess your name before the Father. And then he just says, he who has ears, verse six, let him hear. My question is, do you hear? And whatever you hear today, you must rely upon the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life. So any dead places in your life, bring them before the Lord today and ask God to revive them by his spirit. And he'll do that. He'll meet us in that way. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these hard but helpful truths. And we ask that you just give us grace to see and to deal with the areas of deadness in our lives. And if there's anyone here who is still dead in their sins, meaning they've never asked you for forgiveness and been born again, that you would call them today, that even now, with whatever they understand or don't understand, they would say, Jesus, I I realize I'm a sinner and you're the Savior. Save me, forgive me. I'm yours. And that you would flood our lives with grace, Lord. Grace that brings joy. Grace that transforms. Grace that sustains. Grace that enables us to bring you glory in our lives. Help us with these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.